fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i am your host brian r solomon and this is episode 29 and my guest this week is going to be the beloved collector and historian tom burke who we will get to in just a moment Before we get to Tom and our great conversation, there's actually a few exciting things that I want to talk to you about that are related to classic wrestling and classic wrestling fans and and things that I've been up to as well. Uh, First off is an unfortunate item that I wanted to mention. I'm sure a lot of folks have seen it already. It happened a few days ago, but I wanted to just take a minute to reflect on the passing of the great judo Gene LaBelle the man who was one of the oldest living professional wrestlers. He was an icon in the world of MMA, uh, in the world of martial arts. He was a stuntman for many years. He had appeared in so many movies in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, beyond. Um, The guy was beloved and also feared. He was one of the most legitimately tough human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. And of course, he was a member of the vaunted and extremely important LaBelle family of wrestling promoters. So, of course, he had an involvement in the Los Angeles territory, the Southern California territory, Hollywood wrestling, whatever you want to call it. He was the brother of Mike LaBelle, of course. He was uh, the son of Eileen Eaton and Cal Eaton. And he so he was a crucial part of L.A. wrestling, and really so much more. He was a mentor to Ronda Rousey and a lot of other MMA fighters. He was very much involved in that world. Um, He was a man who was so tough that he could walk around uh, with a pink judo jacket on, just daring anyone to say anything about it and start trouble with him. Uh, So we at Shut Up and Wrestle fondly remember the man and the legacy of judo Gene LaBelle. And I'd also like to mention an item that I think fans of of territorial wrestling and old school vintage wrestling like myself are going to be excited about. Uh, Of course, maybe some of you have heard the news. It was announced uh, through The Rock, Dwayne Johnson's promotional uh, company, that he is partnering with Vice TV to create a show that is kind of a spinoff of Dark Side of the Ring called Tales from the Territories, and it's going to be debuting in October. And I'm giving them a little free publicity just because I'm so excited about this concept. You know, the Dark Side of the Ring show had been great for the three seasons it was on, and it may continue, but it also got into some very dark territory, I mean, as it was supposed to. And I know there were a lot of fans 
like myself who started to feel maybe a little overwhelmed by all the the darkness and scandal and the seamy underbelly of the business uh and and it, and it even started maybe having some negative repercussions and things for people that were on the show i know jim ross had said he didn't want to be on it anymore tony shivani said he didn't want to be on it anymore of course you know tommy dreamer was vilified for comments he made on it and the infamous plane ride from uh plane ride from hell episode um, had major implications for Ric Flair, as we all know, and deservedly so. But I think there were a lot of people who maybe wanted to kind of move away from the heaviness that we had seen in Dark Side of the Ring. And I think this new show is going to kind of open things up a little bit, uh, whereas it, it won't necessarily just be negative stories and scandalous stories, but just great stories, good and bad, from the glory days of territorial wrestling I'm looking forward to seeing what they cover, and i just like to put it out there, of course, uh, if and when they do an episode on Detroit Big Time Wrestling, who better to have on that show than the man who wrote the biography of the one and only original Sheik, myself, Brian Solomon, author of Blood and Fire, the real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And uh, speaking of which, I'd like to mention once again those signings that I have coming up because they're now very close um, as I uh, once this particular show is posted, um, my signing in Parsippany as part of Wrestle Bash 22 will be happening just in the coming weekend. So if you find yourself in the New Jersey area and you would like to come to uh, Parsippany, New Jersey, it's going to be starting at 12 noon. And it is happening at 33 Baldwin Road in Parsippany. So if you're interested, just kind of Google that, Wrestle, Wrestle Bash 22. They've got an amazing group of people that are going to be signing autographs. Plus, they also have me. And so if you're interested in, in maybe picking up a signed copy of Blood and Fire, come on down to Wrestle Bash 22, Saturday, August 20th. Also, the following weekend, the weekend of August 26th, 27th, and 28th, I will be in Albany at the uh, the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame weekend. If you're going to be a part of that, please do come to the merchandise room. I will have a table again. Well, there will be selling signed copies of Blood and Fire. Also, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that the November issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated is now available, um, and I'm excited about it because I've got two great columns in it. Um, I've got one, my, my lockup column where I talk about my, my history with John Cena, of course, who just celebrated 20 years as uh, a, a part of WWE. And so I was kind of motivated to write a column about my early years working with John when he was really just getting started in WWE and hadn't really yet become the face of the company and what that experience was like. And also, uh, perhaps of even greater interest to the old school fan, is my The Way It Was column in the back of the issue where I commemorate the 50th anniversary of what they called the Match of the Century, Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales at Shea Stadium. Of course, the WWWF's first um, of, of the three Shea Stadium shows. And, and uh, next month, September, marks the 50th anniversary of that match and that event and I wrote a column to commemorate it. And I even got to talk to um, Randy Barrier, who many of you may know as the moderator of the WWWF 1970 to 1983 Facebook group. Randy's also been around. I, I believe he's been on John McAdams' Stick to Wrestling show. 
And he was there in Shea Stadium that night. So he had a lot of great memories and recollections to talk about. So if you want to pick it up, the November issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, it's got the PWI poll on the cover. You can get it at pwi-online.com in print or digital form. Uh, you'll be able to find it in stores and on newsstands and things in about a, about probably about a week from now. But for now, you can order your copy online, pwi-online.com. And now, with all that amazing old school wrestling stuff out of the way, I want to get to some even more amazing old school stuff. I'm talking about my conversation with Tom Burke. Now, Tom Burke, for people that don't know, there is a house in Springfield, Massachusetts, in which Tom lives that has one of the most amazing collections of wrestling memorabilia that you will find on the planet Earth. Forget about that A&E show. Tom is the real deal, and I've been to his place a few times. He's really loved by everyone in the business. He's he's a good friend and colleague even of Ben Brown, the archivist for WWE. And uh, it, it's really been a privilege and an honor to be invited to his place on several occasions. He's been a wrestling fan now for something like, uh, oh, God, 60, 70 years. So he's got a lot of amazing stories, and he shared them with me in this conversation. And I am now going to share that conversation with you. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it's my pleasure to introduce somebody who is really, I, I'm, I'm going to be the one to say it because I know he's a modest guy, but he's really beloved in the wrestling fan community. He is, uh, he's been a passionate wrestling fan going back to the 1950s. He's got easily, easily the most enviable collection of wrestling memorabilia on the planet. And I should know because I've seen it. I've been one of the lucky people invited there. And we're not talking about what you see on A&E, you know, a guy that's collected a bunch of Hasbro action figures and things like that. I'm talking about a real historic wrestling memorabilia collection. Um, let me, what else? God, he, he was involved in the WFIA back in the day. And he was a part of my personal favorite wrestling magazine of all time, Ring Wrestling. So it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome Tom Burke to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. That was very kind of you. Oh, uh, please. It's the least I could do. I, I've always welcomed your visits, and I hope that you can visit again when the heat goes down. <laughs> right. No, <laughs> I'm flattered to even get the invitation. You know, there might be some people listening to this that have been there and that have been lucky enough to get the invitation and come down. But but let me tell you, it really is an honor, and, and there are many luminaries within the business who have also had the honor of coming down there to check out just the incredible stuff that you have in your home in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, I've been very fortunate to formulate friendships over the years, and I've had a, a number of, uh, of the people that have been involved in wrestling as wrestlers and promoters visit. Uh, I, I go on with a list and everything, and I just uh, I don't want to sound, uh, I'm patting myself on the back. Please pat today. yourself on the back, Tom. It's okay. Uh, it's, I'm just <laughs> going to give you a guest list as to who has visited sure. and everything. <clears throat> uh, Kevin Kevin Sullivan, uh, Axel Jim Dugan, um, uh, Mula and uh, Donna Cristinello, uh, Luthez, Carl Von Hess, uh, Boyd Pierce, Red Bastine. Um, let me see who was it. 
and there are a number of others and everything, but uh, it was uh, it's all good. Tilla Kowalski, of course, um, and uh, Fred Curry, um, and uh, Mike Shaw, Bull Curry, uh, White Feather, Paul Vachon, Terry Allen, uh, not Terry Allen from um, the Mid-Atlantic, but my old friend Terry Allen, who, who runs Big Time Wrestling, Diamond, Th- Diamond, Diamond, Timothy Flowers, Les Thatcher, um, Bret Hart, and uh, there's a number of others that have popped up over, have walked through the uh, the portals of, of the of the shrine. <laughs> I think as you, Jay Michael Kenya called it. Oh, I, well, that's a very worthy description. I think you even didn't you say to me that William Regal had been there too? And yes, of course. Yeah, Regal. Regal's been here four times. Wow. And every time he came up, he always brought somebody with him. Tajiri, a couple times, and Spanky. Oh, and that's I met, great. I met Regal in England in 91, and we formed an instant friendship. We had a mutual friend, um, Peter Miller, who worked as a Mongolian mauler. And we just kind of hooked up, uh, uh, corresponded over the years before he came into the WWE. WCW, and then eventually into WWF. So, so there you go. For people that are listening, that that uh, that list there should give you an idea of how well regarded the collection is. And I've been there, and I mean, you could you could have your own Hall of Famer museum out of the stuff that you have there, Tom. It's just it's I unbelievable. Actually, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I've been collecting since I was thirteen, and I'm seventy five. So. Uh, I stopped collecting. Well, more or less, I guess I, I, uh, I, I said to myself in a New Year's resolution, no more collecting. I'm not going to buy anything. <laughs> and what did I do this year? I went and got a new collectible, and that was a Whipper Watson beer can from Canada. See, that's so, your that's your own fault for making resolutions that you know you're not going to be able to keep. I know exactly, so, exactly. But I had to have that. You, you know, there's some stuff I have to have. Uh, you know, the LJN and all the other figures and everything i was never a figure guy and everything uh i like paper uh collectibles programs uh flyers etc posters that that is what i really really like and but you know and and also gimmicks right of, of wrestling like uh, uh there's been a couple of license plates that were issued by dick the bruiser and uh, a couple other wrestlers I mean, stuff like this oddities novelties Right, because that's the difference. And that's what I was saying, trying to say in the introduction there. You know, there's a difference between, you know, wrestling commercial merchandise, especially the stuff that's been churned out ever since the mid 80s, like the kind of stuff that was meant for consumers to buy. And and then there's stuff that's really like ephemera of the business, you know, things that are part of the business, uh, posters, checks. Uh, clo- yeah, you know, yeah. used clothing, uh, files, you know, just incredible inside the business kind of stuff that you have. Right. I have uh, <clears throat> Killer Kowalski gave me a pair of his tights and his uh, mask from uh, when he was the, the executioner. And I also have the, have the Grand Prix Heavyweight World's title belt that was uh, that Kowalski had made when he was up in Canada. He was part owner of the the Grand Prix promotions. And uh, I had the WWF belt, uh, commonly known as the Pedro belt, which I had for quite a few years. Uh, about a decade, two decades. and But that eventually was sold just before I retired. Wasn't, wasn't that the belt, wasn't that was supposedly 
pawned by Pedro at one point? That is, that is correct. Uh, the, the story on that, from what I understand, by the uh, proprietor of the, uh, the, uh, the shop that I went to, which was on West 49th Street between uh, Broadway and 8th, and they, they used to have a lot of costumes and Hollywood or uh, Broadway orientated memorabilia, but they always had, they always had a box of wrestling uh, magazines and photos. So I went in and looked and everything. So I said to the gentleman, I said, is there anything else you have other than this? He says, no, I don't. And his wife says to him, he said, hey, you'll excuse me, but I'm going to say it like she did. <laughs> Herbie. They got that wrestling prop in the back room. <laughs> so I said, what the hell's a wrestling prop? To myself, this is night, this is 19 in the 70s. Right. So he goes in the back room, walks out, <clears throat> holding something wrapped up in a New York Post, and he opens it up, and this is WWF belt. I said, Oh my God. I so I how much do you want? I said, I'm $175. So we started backing, bidding me. So I gave him what I what I told I I pay him. And she says, so Herb Bear, we're going to retire. We're moving to Florida to sell to the man. So I got it for 125 Wow. So there was no ATMs at the time. <clears throat> I ended up giving him a deposit of $20. I went home, went to the bank the next morning, got the money, went back to the shop and paid him off. And I had it for uh, quite a bit, about, about almost uh, probably three decades. And didn't, didn't and you say then, WWE so, bought it off you, didn't they? No, no, they uh, no. <clears throat> Regal had seen it, and uh, we were talking about it. This was before Ben Brown got there, and right. I had an offer by an, another an individual. I called Regal, Regal uh, relayed the message, and then he called me back and says, "Take the offer. We're not. They don't want. They want to go any higher than what they offered." So that's it. I think if Ben Brown had been there at the time. He would have snatched it up. Yeah, and for people that don't know, Ben Brown is the archivist for WWE, right? He's the guy that right. that I, I think he actually popped up on uh, one or two of the documentaries they've made, just kind of showing off some of the stuff they've got in their yes, vaults there. Yeah. But I just think it's great that they have somebody like that there now because they never did before. Let me tell you, when I was working there, there was nobody there like that. All they had was... There was a guy in charge of the video archive, and then there was a guy in charge of the warehouse, but he really wasn't an archivist. He basically was just guarding it so nobody broke in. I mean, they really didn't have anything set up the way they do now. They seem to be doing a little better job with it. Well, I think they should. They, they should have a, a person in charge, and Ben Ben has a sense, and that, that was, that's what he studied to be an archivist. So he, he's, he's right on target and everything. And the thing with him, he knows his wrestling, and not the rest, not only wrestling at WWF days, but prior to that as well. Good. So he's 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 a good chap. Yeah, that's imp it's important. It's it's important to preserve the history, you know. And um, so you now, I want to I want to get into the the background here because I know you've been a wrestling fan since what the late fifties, right? Late fifties. Nineteen fifty eight is when I got hooked. Wow, and I know. We were we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how different it was back then and how, you know, there were things you could do back then in wrestling that maybe wouldn't fly so much today. Exactly. Uh, I'll give you a couple couple examples. Uh, now, 
when I was growing up and I was my, my teen years, uh, like 14, 13, 14, 15, we had a, uh, a diet of wrestling shows on our local TV from various, uh, various areas. We had, uh, Chicago, we had Indianapolis from Balk S's promotions and we had Buffalo from Pedro Martinez. And we had on a good night on a Thursday night, you could catch, um, uh, Capital Wrestling from out of the Waterbury Station, but it would be awful snowy. Well, anyways, uh, on Big Time Wrestling out of Indianapolis, the ballcaster, Dick the Bruiser was talking to Sam Menick, who was the uh, commentator, and his, uh, they were probing his Monius uh, upcoming match with Bobo Brazil. And he says to Menick, you know, the Negro man has a a three quarters inch thicker skull than the white man. He has a deadly cocoa buck, you know? Right, right. And Medicare sells it, you know? Yeah. But, you know, God for, you know, if that was said today, they'd they'd be up in arms. Well, I think the the interesting thing that's changed, and I've talked about this before, is, you know, obviously Dick the Bruiser's saying that to get heat. You know, he's a heel. He knows that people love Bobo and, He's a huge, hugely popular fan favorite. And so if if he takes a shot at him like that, he comes off as an awful person and people hate him, which is what he's being paid to do. But, you know, I, I find it funny how now it's it's weird because um, I don't know how closely you follow wrestling today, but um, it seems like when the heels, the heels are OK, as long as they're not saying anything that doesn't actually piss anybody off uh, the minute. They, you know, because people like to be entertained. They like a heel that makes them laugh. But the minute they say something where, oh, my God, how, how dare he say that? You know, the guy will get in a lot of trouble. He'll have to do a big apology. And I just think it's hilarious because that used to be what the heel's job was. It was to get under your skin and infuriate you, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, going back to the relationship between Brazil and Bobo, in one of the magazines, Big Time Wrestling, they had Bruiser, Bruiser at home, and he had his German Shepherd, who was named Bobo. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that was something that was done back then. And like you mentioned, too, the, the whole idea behind the cocoa butt, it's kind of like what they would do later on with Samoan wrestlers. How I always remember as a kid, even, even as late as the 80s, they were still kind of doing the whole idea that Samoan wrestlers had this really hard head. And if you yeah. tried to headbutt them, you would hurt yourself. You know, they don't do that anymore. They don't do that with Roman Reigns or the Usos, but they used to do it back in the day. And I think it was an outcropping of how they also used to kind of do the same thing sometimes with black wrestlers. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you don't see that stuff today. And then, you know, uh, there's hardly any uh, wrestling per se, mat wrestling on, um, on TV. Occasionally, you'll see something, but very seldom, you know? Yeah. And I I, I miss that. Well, I think also the definition of what is good wrestling has changed a lot over the years because you'll see, you know, a lot of times I find the people in current wrestling that are really regarded as being the best. I I still think there there are a lot of talented guys, but a lot of them are doing what would have in the old days been considered a very kind of aerial style, like what. Luthez used to call choreographed tumbling, you know, right. whereas in, in those days it was more, it was very psychological. Like I remember I recently watched um, 
uh, a match, one from the Chicago archives. It was a 60 minute draw between Fez and Buddy Rogers. And, and it's just, it's like watching a prize fight. I mean, every move they make makes sense. Even when they leave their feet, you know, it all makes yeah. sense. And all the spots are connected and you can tell there's a lot of thought put in even to the littlest, littlest details. And, you know, it, it's just a very different style and approach. And Tom, don't you think that a big part of it back then too was they were trying very hard to make sure that people believed in what they were seeing? Oh, absolutely. They, they, they were trying to tell a story and make sure that you believe about what you saw in action, you know? And and, and it sold. You know, the, the arenas were packed all over, you know? And it's not like today where there's all forms of different entertainment, you know, which has uh, right. crippled, uh, crippled wrestling to a degree, you know? And uh, like you said, uh, you know, what was the last time a wrestling match was at a show and the guys wrestled 20 minutes in a draw, you know? Right. You know, and the funny thing is, I think it whenever it happens now, the audience always seems to feel like they got gypped. Like there's a sense of of disappointment, whereas, you know, I, I, I think that that mentality's changed. Like I saw um, about a year ago at Arthur Ashe Stadium in Queens AEW came there and they had a match uh, between Kenny Omega, who I think at that time was their champion, and against Brian Danielson, who had just come over to the company from WWE. And they did a 30 minute draw. And, you know, I thought they had a great match. I really did enjoy it. But when the finish happened, the crowd was furious. And instead of, I think when they used to do those kind of finishes, it made the audience want to see the rematch. I think now people just feel ripped off when that happens. Like I, I just, I just wrote an article for PWI on the 50th anniversary of Bruno San Martino versus Pedro Morales at Shea Stadium, and they had an hour and 15 minute draw, a curfew draw. And I talked to people who were there, and they said everyone there was totally okay with that finish. They thought it was a great match, and they they liked that they. We're friends at the end, and and they didn't need to have a winner. And I, I think that the reaction would be very different today. I I, I agree with you hundred percent on that. You know, yeah. you know what so, I think too. I think it's because nowadays they're looking at it more as entertainment, purely as entertainment. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's, it's to them, it's like it's an entertainment, uh, a focus of entertainment, and not not an athletic contest. Right. So know? they're basically saying, "Hey, you didn't entertain us." as well as you could have, they're not looking at it like when you're watching a sporting event, you, you accept what occurs because you believe in what you're seeing. You're not, you're not complaining that the, a game or a fight, you know, is, is not as entertaining as it should be to you. And you're certainly not complaining to the athletes about it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I agree with you hundred percent. Yeah. But, you know, uh, things have changed and, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't see it ever going to rewind back to my era and the stuff that I like. I don't think that's going to take place. Yeah, well, because, uh, I mean, wrestling's always changing and it's always changing into something else. Because, I mean, even even when you were discovering it on TV in those early years, it had already changed so much. If you talk to somebody from, you know, your parents' generation, if they were a wrestling fan or your grandparents' generation – they would have told you it was a very different kind of wrestling when they were watching it too. That's very true because I remember my grandfather, 
uh, saw Zabisco. Both of Zabiscos wrestled when he lived in New York City. Amazing. Uh, that would have been in the twenties. Right. Know? Right. But you know, but you know, it's what it is. You know, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, be around for another a good another couple decades. Yeah. I'm knocking on wood. I'm knocking on wood, Tom, if you can hear it. Yeah. I'm knocking really loud. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, I want to share with you a couple experiences I've had. Yeah, please. Uh, on the road and everything. Sure. Um, I was uh, I, I was involved with the wrestling magazines, Ring Wrestling and a couple of the others and everything. And even though I, I had a, I had press credentials, went to MSG, but as, as press, but I've always found that um, the main people in the MSG, Jordan Napolitano and after, were always given cards blanc and everything, which was fine. And I wasn't, I, I ended up traveling because I, I had worked for Trailways Bus Lines at the time. So I was a dispatcher at the Port Authority bus terminal. So on my days off, I would travel around, go different places. So I, I would start going to Burlington, Vermont for the matches up there on Thursday nights. And uh, I got friends with the guys from Grand Prix. And I had met Kowalski prior to that as well. And over the years, I would go up there and there would be different um, groups I would wrestle. Um, after Grand Prix went down, the results took it over. I would be, was able to form a relationship with them and others. And... At one time, I, I went to the show, and unbeknownst to me was that Chris Cole was on a show, who was a longtime friend. Hmm. And it was Chris and I used to be pen pals in the 60s. Wow. We were, we were in high school. And uh, I had met Chris a number of times that I, I was unaware he was working in uh, Montreal at the time. So we were up there and blah, 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 hung out and had a great time. The next night was Manchester, New Hampshire. And I was going to travel with uh, Chris Coe, um, Yashi Fuji, Fuji, and Bonnie, who was Jungle Jane from Detroit. And she was uh, Cole's companion. Mm -hmm. So we're... We're, we're heading out out of Burlington. We get gas. She tells the kid, this was when before self-service, to check the oil. So the kid opens up. We open up the hood, checks the oil, closes the hood. We're going down a mountain in New Hampshire. The kid didn't push the hood all the way down, and the wind came up and pulled, pushed the hood up. Wow. I thought it was over. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was over, and of course, there was homely cigarettes going back and forth. Well, that was the last time for me. <laughs> but Nick DiCarlo was behind us, and you know we pulled the pool on the side. We all got in his vehicle and went down to Manchester, New Hampshire, for the show and everything. But you know that that was it. You know, I I I, I was very fortunate enough to uh, meet Chris when he wrestled as Maurice. Um, the Chevier here in, in 65 when he was wrestling for Tony Santos and uh, reunited our friendship then and it continued till I talked to him uh, about six months before he passed away. He's such an interesting figure to me because, it, yeah. you know, what a 
he, he seemed to be ahead of his time. He just really had oh, a absolutely. such a subversive persona and everything. I, I came across him when I was doing the Chic book because he was one half of the Hells Angels in Detroit. Right. Yes. Yeah. He, he was way ahead of his time. He, he was the first guy that really did rock music entrances and face painting. Right. And everything in the 70s. I don't. And I'm talking of probably about 70, 76, 77. Yeah. Way ahead of everybody else. Yeah. He, his problem were all his demons that mm. were in his life. And uh, sad to say, you know, he would go places and uh, they'd be using him on top and he'd screw up or something. And it was Asa La Vista. Right. Know? He never yeah. got the recognition he deserved or, or even yeah, the success yeah. that he should have had, you know? Absolutely not, you know. Uh, and I even I even mentioned it to the wizard one time. I said, "Gee, I said, oh, you know, try to bring in uh, a Colton Dupree." And he looked. And he said, "The old man would have a heart attack." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's probably right. Yeah, you know, you know, but yeah, that was funny, you know. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the wizard told me a story when they were in Detroit. They uh, Chris and Ronnie had had the apartment right above uh the wizards and bobby Harmon. yeah and he gets up in the morning walks into this bath and his water all coming down from upstairs cole had filled up the the bathtub and never shut off the faucets <laughs> and everything just just crazy stuff yeah yeah he, he was a the a unique kind of guy it's like you only find people like that in the wrestling business you know oh, what i mean absolutely yeah it seems Absolutely. to attract people like that, I think. Right, exactly. You know, I, I had mentioned to you that, you know, I, I worked at the Port Authority bus terminal in, in New York, and I had a couple encounters with wrestling folks there. Uh, Joe Turco, he used to take the uh, bus from the Port Authority to Long Branch, uh, New Jersey. And I, when I, I saw him standing by the bus, uh, the standing in line to board the bus, so I saw him from my dispatch booth. So I got on the micro, I'm on the PA system, and asked, "Will Boris K. Fabian please report to <laughs> gate number nine? And all of a sudden, I I pop up there. I said, "You know, look, I'm looking for him." And then there was another time with Dr. Jerry Graham. Another one. I I was I was walking the terminal and I saw him sitting there. Doc. You know, blah, blah, blah. He knew me. And so I told him, I said, what's up? I lost my ticket to Washington. He said, I can't find it. You know, I said, okay, wait a minute. So I go upstairs to the ticket office and I got to end up getting a comp ticket to go to Washington. You know, but it's, you know, it was a lot of fun. And then one time on a, on a better note, when uh, all the hullabaloo didn't take place with Mr. Mel Phillips, uh, I got him on a bus back to Philly from New York. Uh, and so he got uh, supposedly mugged. Oh boy! Wow, I don't think I ever heard that story. I, I don't feel too bad for him, to be honest with you. <laughs> but you know that that's life, you know. Yeah. You know, but that, but but it was a fun time, you know, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things took place there. I, I well, I was there as well. I met some people that I knew went to high school with, and an old army buddy came through, and you know, so it was, it was good. It was all good. And you, and you mentioned Kowalski a little while back, and I have to get yeah. back to that because I just know from talking to you and even from being at your place that you and Killer or Walter, if you prefer, had uh, a very good friendship. And he, he kind of was your idol, I guess, would you say? 
yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I first met Kowalski when I was a young kid. Uh, I was, I was, I'd be 59, no, 60, I'm sorry, 1960, standing outside the Springfield Auditorium where the matches were held. And the guys are coming out. The baby face, I wanted to get a, a, an autograph from Pat O'Connor, who walked by briskly. Kowalski was behind him a few feet, stopped, signed my, signed my autograph book, thanked me, and, I, and he says, God bless you. Hmm. You know? And that changed everything. I was a fan of his from day one, you know? Yeah. And uh, it was, yeah, but we, we formed a friendship. And uh, after I met him uh, again years later, in 1969, the WFIA convention, he had just returned from South Africa. And I had a correspondent who had sent me some stuff uh, from South Africa. And I mentioned it to Kowalski, and he was surprised that I knew about it. And uh, but he, uh, he, and then, you know, he was a vegetarian. Yes. And uh, he came to my house a number of times. Maybe he attended my sister's wedding. And so, yeah, I, we, we have a very close friendship over the years. He was at my retirement party from the post office. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fun, you know. I remember reading, I read a story about him that said that he used to like to practice his wrestling promos while he was driving around in his car. He would, he would like just cut a promo to nobody just to sort of like uh, to practice. I don't know if you, if you ever heard that or saw it. I, I heard it. I, I never witnessed it. Yeah. But uh, I, I did hear, I, I haven't heard that. Uh, Walter was very, uh, very cautious as to who his driving uh riding companions were he would do all the driving you could not smoke you could not drink in the car the, the, those were the rules right you know? so uh nikolai volkov was one of the guys that traveled with him uh you know um but you know um he, he was very stringent in that area you know he was like i said a vegetarian for decades you know, and uh, as as was Carl von Hess too. Oh, that and, I didn't know. And I believe Billy that I know was too. And uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of those guys lived their lives the way they wanted to. You know, and uh, that was good. Yeah, and I I think that was what attracted them to the business in a way was they they got to just sort of live life on their own terms. You know. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And he stands out because, look, I mean, uh, there's a lot of there's there's a lot of unsavory people that that wound up in the wrestling business and kind of degenerate people, and and the killer was not one of them. You know, he he, he seemed to be a very decent, down to earth kind of guy, which of course you would never imagine if you only knew him from you know from watching him wrestle, but uh, he seemed to be an exception. Yeah, he, he definitely was an exception to the rule. And he was very active uh, in the Archdiocese of Boston uh, during their youth um, programs. They would have an annual re retreat, and he would always be one of the featured speakers. Oh, so, wow. Very interesting. You know, stuff that uh, a lot of people were uh, totally unaware of. You know, his killer instinct was very angelic. Plus, he had his school, his wrestling school, yes. in 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 Malden, right? Is that where it was? Right. And yeah, it was in Malden, and it bounced around from a couple other places too. But Malden was the was the uh, 
the first place, as I recall. And so he he kind of made an extra mark on the business then because you had a whole another generation of young wrestlers that you know learned from him and a lot of them are still around you know the most famous one probably is triple h you know that exactly that keep exactly. his uh, keep his name alive you know yeah exactly yeah he was uh you know walter had the school and he trained many uh many uh that went on to be very good and some of them uh you know were were guys that lasted because some of the guys are still working that uh, started in the first class oh wow I, john callahan is one uh he no longer wrestles but he, he's a manager in, here in new england for a couple of promotions you know and so you know it's uh it's a situation where uh, they all form we have a we have an annual Kilo kowalski iwf reunion which is going to be in september which I'm hoping to go to this year. I missed it last year, but well, but you know, we get together with all the guys and gals that work for Walter in the area. I remember hearing the story with the Yukon Eric situation. You could tell me how how accurate this is. Maybe maybe he told it to you or you heard about it. But I remember hearing that you know, of course, everybody knows they had their match where Kowalski came down off the ropes with a knee drop. He took off. Yukon Eric's cauliflowered ear, which is very brittle, kind of like what happened to Mick Foley, I guess, in a way. He took right. the ear off. And then I guess he later went to visit him in the hospital because I guess he must have felt bad. Obviously, it was an accident, obviously, but he went to visit him. And the story I heard was, you know, there was press there or something like that. And they saw him go in there. And something happened where he looked at Eric. And he's all wrapped up, his head's wrapped up. And just in the moment, he didn't mean to, but he just started laughing because he looked like uh, Humpty Dumpty or something. Yeah, he looked at Humpty Dumpty. Right. And they both, and you know, he, and that, Walter told me that story. And they said they looked at each other and they saw dollar signs. <laughs> but see, I also heard that when he did that, when he started laughing, that the people that saw that happen, they took it as a sign of how uh, sadistic he was. And, and, it, yeah. and it made it, it sort of helped to build his reputation because uh, for being, you know, the sadistic wrestler, even though, you know, he, he, he wasn't a sadistic person, right, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But, but that, that end of that formulated their feud, of course, and they took that on the road forever. Wow. You know? Yeah. They made a lot of money with that. Unfortunately, of course, Yukon Eric came to a sad end. He, I think yeah. he took his own life, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. It was a shame. Yeah. You know, um, we've been, we've mentioned a few times here talking about, you know, you mentioned the WFIA earlier and I've had other people um, on the show that have been affili affiliated with them over the years. Like Dave Brzezinski was on the show uh, a few months ago. And I've always been so fascinated by that organization because you don't really have anything like that today. I guess it's because of the internet. Um, it's, I, I believe so. And then, you know, uh, you know, the, the formation of the WFIA came from fan clubs, which we don't have today either. Right. You know? Yeah. And it was and a, it was a fan organization. It was a fan organization and it was an uphill battle. Uh, there were some promoters that were um, approving of it and others that didn't want anything to do with it. 
because of kayfabe, you know? Right. They thought it was going to destroy their promotions. But uh, Sam Wojcik gave it a nod. Uh, Paul Bosch was a big supporter. We were in Houston twice, you know? And there are a number of other promoters, you know? But uh, definitely, uh, the LaBelle promotions in L.A. Uh, and Jeff Walton had mentioned this to me mm. when we were talking about it. Uh, he says, maybe because we're in Hollywood, we're talking about his promotions, and know the value of fan clubs in in for entertainment level for movie stars, etc. The value of the WFIA for wrestling, you know. So they had a different concept. And wasn't that back then? Speaking of California and the WFIA, wasn't Dave Meltzer a member when he was a kid? He, he I believe, he was. I know he did not go to the convention in L.A., which was in '72, I believe. Is in Santa Monica. Right. And, you know, uh, by the way, for people that are curious, uh, you must have seen this, but there's a video out there. I found it on YouTube of uh, a WFIA convention from the 70s in Detroit. It's silent. There's no sound. Yes. yes. And you're in it. You're in it. You're, <laughs> you're, I've th- seen that. There's yeah. a young Tom Burke and a young Dave Brzezinski back when he had hair. Sorry, Dave. You guys are you guys are are running around. I remember I asked him about it and he told me that the Sheik, you know, he was okay with it, but he just said, I just can't be there. You know, there's no way that I could attend. So when they had to give him an award, they gave it to him privately. Right. Yeah. 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 And uh yeah, you know, speaking of the Sheik, you know, and you, you know, by the way, I want to congratulate you on your excellent book on him. It's just phenomenal. Thank you, you Tom. Know? And he was uh the true villain of wrestling, in my opinion, you know. Yes. And he was uh, two stories. Uh, I think I even mentioned this to you about uh, going back to TV wrestling in the '60s, early '60s, and the Sam Menneker's talking to Joe Blanchard, and the Sheik is coming out and doing his thing, and his uh, uh, the princess is there with her uh, incense burner and. Uh, Joe Blanchard says to uh, Medicare, I wonder what that's in there. And Medicare turns around and says, That's probably that stuff called marijuana. <laughs> but this is, this is, you know, this is in the early set. We don't know what the hell marijuana is. You know, you know today the, a five year old kid does. You right. Know? But back in the day, we didn't, you know. And yeah. I, I, I remember that uh, Lewis does had mentioned to me that they invited the Fed, uh, invited the sheep to go to CAC. Right. You know, to be honored. And he wouldn't go well, even with his own peers, you know? Yeah. Well, what I heard, what I heard about that, because I, I came across that too, was that he got angry because I think he was okay with going. He was going to go, but he got angry, be, especially because back then it was, there weren't a lot of fans there. It was really an inside yeah. thing. So, so he wasn't uncomfortable with that, but it was more that. Uh, I had heard that he was upset that they started mentioning his name and advertising that he was coming before he had agreed to it and that he felt like they were exploiting him. And it, you know, cause he was a very particular guy, he, you know, everything had to be his way. And I think yeah. he, he got insulted by that and he, and he backed out of it. Okay. That might've been part of it too. So but that's, that's interesting. But he, he was on the first show I ever went to in 59. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 60, 60. and uh, he was definitely on the show. Uh, Red Bastine was on the show. Uh, George Bowles was on the show. 
Chief, uh, Chief Bighart did not go on the show. Red Bastine substituted for him. But it was all those guys, and uh, I got to meet six of them over the years. Wow. You know, and uh, I met George Bowles, the Zebra Kid, uh, when I was stationed in Germany, and he was at a tournament in Cologne, Germany. And I was uh, introduced to him, and the, the promoter, Gerhard Schaefer, no, um, Gustav Kaiser, I'm sorry, Gustav Kaiser uh, brought me in a dressing room, introduced me to the, the boys and everything. And um, because I was a GI, uh, Bolas took his time and we talked and everything and blah, 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 you know. I was the only other American there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, yeah, you know, that's interesting to me, too, because we've talked about this, how like, you know, you were in the service. And so you did a lot of traveling and wherever you would go, you would always try to seek out where the wrestling was. Exactly. That, that was that was my that was my goal. The, the only time I did not do that was when we uh, myself and two other guys went to Paris and what was that would have been in 68, I think. But we were there, and there were riots going on over the Vietnam War. Mm. And we we decided to pack our bags and leave. We went down to Madrid. We got on the train and went to Madrid and then flew out of Madrid back to our air base. Because even though I was in the Army, I was stationed at, a, at an air base. So, but, you know, it was all fun. Yeah. No, because <laughs> I love it because that's exactly what I would have done if I was in your shoes. The first thing I would have thought of was, you know, especially back then, you know, when the wrestling was so different everywhere you went. I mean, it's different now. But but back then when you had all these wrestling kingdoms, you know, that would be the thing I would have done, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, because when I got over there, I, I, I wrote home, I said, I, I had ex- ex- exceptionally great duty. And I wrote home, I said, I don't think I'm coming home until I get discharged. <laughs> I, I traveled all over Europe, you know, so I, I, I was fortunate. Definitely. And I, made, I made contacts, wrestling contacts and everything. So it was it was all good. And so when did you wind up getting involved with ring wrestling? Because I, I do want to talk about that for people that well, remember it. I, but before uh, before you answer, I just want to make sure, you know, because sometimes I think in the in the history of wrestling magazines, um, the sometimes it gets overshadowed. Everybody and I and I love the London magazines and the, the after mags. I write for Pro Wrestling Illustrated now. I, I think they have a great tradition, but uh, they weren't the only magazines around. A lot of the older ones aren't as well remembered today. And, and I think the Ring Wrestling magazine was, I told you this before we started, was the highest quality wrestling publication that there ever was, in my opinion. I, I agree with you. Well, I, I first started doing a column in the back. We had, in the back of the magazine, were called Agate Columns. And they were contributing uh, articles by by people, sending in results and blah, blah, blah. And I had a column called The Wrestling Beat. I was in high school at the time. And what I would do after high school, um, and Springfield has a, had a unique high school uh, situation. We had four, high sc- four public high schools all in the same area. And they were all located on State Street and Elliott Street which all merged together onto State Street. And leaving the high school accommodators, which was my high school on top of the hill, I'd walk down with my buddies. I would excuse myself. I would go into the public library and go to the uh, newspaper room, which had newspapers from 
a variety of cities. I think we had about, uh, I think about 10, out, uh, 10 cities outside of Massachusetts, the San Francisco Chronicle, LA Times, Chicago Tribune, Dallas, Miami Herald. Anyways, I'd go to the, I, I would, I'd go and I'd make notes and look at the wrestling stuff and, you know, and then I'd compile it and send it into to the magazine. And that's how I ended up uh, starting uh, writing for them. And then years later, when I was in Germany, I wrote, I don't, I, I don't know why I reached, didn't reach out to ring wrestling, but I, I reached out to uh, Lou Eskin because I think he was, he was involved with the WFIA. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a press pass, and I wrote an article on the Cologne wrestling tournament that I, that I went to in 67, or so, 68. And uh, so I, so that's how it ended up. And, and then when I uh, came home from the service, I went back to my old job, which they had to keep open for you if you're in the service. Right. And I stayed there for about a year, not even a year. And I left and I got a job with Trailways Bus Lines in New York City, originally as a ticket agent. And they approached me, management approached me if I like to be a dispatcher. And so my two-week stint as a ticket agent and training ended and I became a dispatcher and did that for seven years. And oh, more than seven, ten years, almost ten years. And while I was there, I, I, I started to go on my days off to old bookstores that were magazine back issue stores, etc. And I'd walk over to the magazine office, which was uh, by MSG at the time. And I go in, and they had a museum of boxing. They had some wrestling memorabilia. So I looked at it. So one day I went in and I saw I saw Matt Lubay in his office. Oh wow! And I got knocked on the door and went in and introduced myself. I said, "I used to write for you, blah blah blah." And we started talking. I said, um, "I'd like to do some. I'd like to write again." He said, "Well, you know what? We, I need a fan club columnist because whoever was doing it uh, had had dropped out or whatever." And then I, I and then I said, "Oh, that's good." And then we started talking. He says, where, where, what do you do? And I told him I do, what, what I do is work and everything. He said, have you got time to come in and work in the office here a couple of days a week, filing and whatever. So that's what I did. And I met a variety of characters. Sam Taub, who's an old boxing guy and also a wrestling guy, he worked for Jack Pepper. Hmm. And, and it was just amazing. Uh, Sam was a radio announcer for uh, wrestling and boxing. And he was a, uh, a a real character, totally New Yorker. You know? <laughs> now, I know that because, uh, you know, my my grandfather was a boxer and a trainer, a boxing coach, and he had uh, a huge collection of the ring magazine, the boxing magazine, oh, yeah. the ring. And I know in the early years, like back in the 30s and 40s, because I, I have the issues that were his. They used to cover wrestling in the yeah. ring. They had its own. It had its own section, right? Yeah, it had. A, they had about three or four pages of wrestling. I had some of those issues as well, and that went right up to the sixties. And then in, uh, I, I think it was, I think it was sixty-two or sixty-three. They developed Ring Wrestling Magazine, and then uh, again, in in the style of the Ring Magazine. They they build on the history of the sport, the 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 wrestlers as as sports athletes, etc. You know, and and they had several 
well-known writers, Dan Daniel, for one, who was a boxing historian, and he would write on wrestling, as well as Sam Taub and several others. And Jack Pepper uh, would donate a lot of his pictures uh, in the early, some of the early magazine, ring wrestling magazines from the museum of Jack Pepper, all these photos. Right. You know? That's what and I so, love about it. I love about it that it, it treated it very seriously. It covered it like a sport. There was a lot of history in it. And and what I find an, an amazing photography, which I didn't even, I guess it makes sense if you're saying it came from the Pfeffer collection. That makes sense. There's amazing right. photography. But what I love about it, too, is if you go back and you look at those issues, it was interesting to me how they were so serious about covering wrestling that they would even say, and sometimes in a roundabout way, they weren't afraid to talk about how some matches were exhibitions and some matches were shoots. Like, like they didn't they didn't fully pull the curtain back and talk about the details and the ins and outs. They, did, they didn't really. But they did acknowledge the fact that a lot of matches were worked, which I thought was amazing to read in a wrestling magazine from the 60s. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, it, it had its, its, it had its following. And everything, and uh, you, we had a um, a stable group of people, writers, and everything, who who were devoted to wrestling. You know, um, and, you know, nobody was unlike um, the other publications that were uh, they were full time employees. Everybody that worked in the on the magazines, other than uh, three people: uh, Dan Dan Daniels, Sam Tobb, and Johnny Orr were staff members of the ring magazine, but everybody else was contributing articles. So did, did ring wrestling stay under the umbrella of the ring magazine? Was it still the same group or did they break off and become something yeah. different? It broke off. Uh, Nat Bay sold the rights to ring wrestling to Dave, the busher, the uh, baseball, no, uh, basketball guy, right? I think so. Yeah, and he and uh, some other business guys, and they brought in uh, Bert Sugar, ah. who, got, who originally got his start at Ring Wrestle, Ring Magazine back in the in the forties. And I went to the office one day, unbeknownst to me that this was happening, and uh, Sugar calls me in his office, and he says to me. You don't have to come in anymore because I'm taking all this wrestling. Well, he said effing wrestling stuff <laughs> and saying it to Norman Keitzer. Well, and Keitzer ended up taking off uh, doing Ring Magazine per se, but uh, it, it was different. It was, a, it was a different concept, you know. So right. that ended my uh, my days at Ring Ring Magazine. Oh, that, uh, that's so interesting. It's interesting. And, yeah. you know, what the way you describe with Burt Sugar, I mean, because my grandfather knew Burt Sugar, too, from the boxing circles in New York. And, you know, there was that attitude back then, which which is something you don't find so much anymore. But how people in boxing, they really look down their nose at wrestling. It really was an embarrassment a lot of the time. Yeah. And, and you know what I find so hypocritical about that when he when he ended that in the late 70s, when wrestling went to the heights in the 80s with the Hogan and all that Sugar was on top of that with the Napolitano putting out books you know yeah so you know I so you know I, I had I had a little bit better there you know but 
Well, no, that's understandable. No, that's totally understandable, especially because even Burt Sugar himself, he'd continue to do wrestling related things. I remember he did that book with Captain Lou, which is it's not that great of a book. But I mean, it, it was a book all about wrestling and it has his name on it. So I guess he was okay with making money off it from time to time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But he 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 uh, he he was not a wrestling person. Right. Only 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 if, only if there was a payoff. It definitely w- was a sad day for me when uh, when the magazine went off. And then you know I got involved with other magazines, but it just wasn't the same. Right, and you know it just uh, in that era too. The wrestling magazines were becoming much more sensationalistic, and right. with the bloody covers and the apartment wrestling and the and the made up storylines and things like that, it was very different kind of magazines. Exactly, you know, but it's it's what it it is what it is, you know, and everything. Yeah, but but it was fun. Well, I, you know, uh, it was a fun time. I enjoyed doing it, and my focus were uh were articles of history like i i did the black history i did the uh, tag teams uh and other other uh, managers you know i i love the, doing that stuff and thank god that i was able to reach out to older wrestlers mm. and they they were very helpful paul bosch was the best boy yeah he, he was another memory. one yeah great great memory yeah, and he he knew he knew what my what I was doing, you know, and he applauded that, you know. He also seemed like he really loved to preserve the history. I mean, he had his own oh, yeah, collection. Exactly. You couldn't. Exactly. Not every wrestling promoter was like that. You know what I mean? Oh, no. he he not was he was unique, and he had another huge collection of memorabilia and stuff that wound up, you know, in the possession of a lot of different people after he passed. After he passed, yeah, and <clears throat> speaking of that. I, I, I'm sure this is still going on, but Sam Mushek's daughter has all his files and all of his programs that were, have been bound into a hardbound uh, book. Oh, wow. By, by, by several years, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. You know, so much of, uh, I've had conversations like this with a lot of people over the years, but so much of wrestling history is, just um all over the place i mean it's not you know what i mean like uh, so many different people have so many different things everything is so spread out and you know sometimes there's there's a real fear that things are going to just be lost forever or, or wind up in private collections and no one knows where they are or what happened to them you know there's so much stuff out there uh, you know um two people that i i know that were collectors of their own memorabilia Carl Von Hess and Bull Curry. And uh, of course, Carl Von Hess has passed away as Bull. But Carl Von Hess, when I visited him on several occasions, he had a, a steamer trunk filled with wrestling memorabilia, programs, scrapbooks, etc. And he was very kind enough to uh, give me one of his robes as well as giving one to my good friend, John Pantosi as well, who is, in my opinion, the premier wrestling collector of all time. Thank you. But, <laughs> and, 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 and Bull Curry, uh, Bull Curry, wherever he went, he always brought home newspaper clippings, 
programs order by order of his wife, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, I'm very good friends with the, the Curry family. And I've been uh, able to look at a lot of this stuff and, and the scrapbooks are just amazing. You know, uh, it's just, it's just wonderful stuff. You know, when we were, I was at CAC one year with Paul Bashan, and they had, that's when CAC ran an auction. And I don't know who it was, but someone had donated a scrapbook from like the 40s, 50s, which I won. Not for myself, but I was a, I was the agent for John Pantosi. Paul Vashon and I sat there looking at this scrapbook for hours and hours. We didn't get to bed till three o'clock in the morning. And not a drink between us, you know, <laughs> just, just, just going over the, oh, oh, he has stories to tell one after another, one after another, you know. I have, you know, I have my grandfather's boxing scrapbook, which is an incredible thing. And, you know, scrapbooks were a much bigger thing back then, obviously, trying to preserve all this stuff. He, my grandfather with boxing, he had a scrapbook that he started keeping when he was a child and the, from boxing. And it would be, it was clippings from his family members that were boxers and from the boxers he liked watching. And then later when he was a, he had his own career, it would be clippings from that. But he kept filling the same uh, marble notebook from the, for the rest of his life, from when he was a child, I, I have that notebook. It, it's, it was just the, the, the painstaking care that would go into creating these, these scrapbooks. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, you know, talking about that, um, Jesse James, a local wrestler here in new England, wrestler for Santos for decades, he would keep a record of his matches the payoff and the, t the town date, et cetera. You know, uh, I got to see that once. And when he passed away, uh, the family uh, passed his uh, scrapbooks on to um, uh, Royal Duncan, who was a member of the CAC, who was a good friend of uh, Jesse James. But Jesse wrestled in the oh, late, no, early 50s, right up to... We were still active in wrestling till the late, uh, early seventies when Seattle's was still doing stuff. Now wrestling's kind of this weird animal where a lot of times people are, you know, uh, ashamed to admit, uh, how much, um, how much of a fan they are of it. And, um, so I, I'm curious, was there any kind of a stigma with, uh, with wrestlers who would keep their own, you know, kind of a record of their own career or their own memorabilia was there, were they looked at as acting like a mark or something like that? Well, I'll I share a story with you. This did not involve me. A, a very good friend of mine who is a premier wrestling historian uh, was in Columbus, Ohio, and he went to see Al Hack when Al was running and he started talking about some of the stuff Al was doing and everything. And he's absolutely like, you're taking this stuff too seriously. 
<laughs> that but that was the mentality right of just that it was it was just this is a way to make money and that's all it is and and don't exactly. get too don't get too uh interested in it or or whatever that you know there was yeah. it was that real kind of carny attitude you know exactly exactly yeah yeah but you know i mean it's part of our life you know right I mean, if i had to turn the clock back in in the wrestling sense there wouldn't be anything i would change i i, I would make couple other decisions maybe but not overall i would have i would keep it the same well you saw some amazing things and you've done amazing things you've collected amazing things so i you know i can completely understand why you'd say that um i mean and and i'm glad that you took the time out today to, to talk to me about it to give me your time i i've been meaning to ask you ever since i first started doing this podcast if you would come on and and i'm really glad that you did well, it's been a, it's a pleasure, and thank you for your friendship, and uh, not only on the, on the podcast but in person as well. And I hope that you will uh, visit again in the very near future. After, oh, absolutely! After the, after, after the heat leaves us, <laughs> yeah, I'll so wait for it to cool off. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, well, well, you tell me when, and I will be there. That's a promise. Okay, very well, very well. Okay, my friend, thank you very much. All right. All right, Tom. Thank you so much. Take care. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the professor, Tom Burke. That was a fun one. And I'm looking forward to that invite, Tom. I'm going to hold you to it. Looking forward to getting back to the shrine, to the amazing museum that Tom has in his house. Very exciting. Can't wait to do it again. Hope you enjoyed that. And coming up on our next show, get ready, because it's going to be episode 30 of Shut Up and Wrestle, and I have something special planned for that. It is the person I've been touting for a few weeks now, the Prince of Darkness, the Taskmaster, the Games Master, whatever you want to call him. Kevin Sullivan will be my guest next week, episode 30 of Shut Up and Wrestle. And we've got some other great ones coming up. I've also got kind of a string of uh, former WWF corporate and magazine people on the way, people that I've worked with. Um, Chief photographer for many years, Tom Buchanan, is going to be with me. Uh, Magazine writer and editor, Aaron Williams, who I worked with for years in 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 a gray little office in Titan Tower. He will be coming up. Uh, soon. Um, I've also got Keith Caramello, the designer and artist. He crafted uh, several of WWE's title belts. He did work on the magazine, creative services, you name it, plus tattoo artist to the wrestlers. He will be coming up um, in the weeks to come as well on Shut Up and Wrestle. So do keep listening. And how are you listening to Shut Up and Wrestle? How are you finding it? Well, of course, there's our website, suawpod.com. In addition to that, there's also uh, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcast, you'll find this show. 
And I want to mention too someone else that slipped my mind and shouldn't have because he's going to be, he was a terrific guest and he's coming up soon. Ross Hart of the Hart Wrestling Family. How could I forget in the weeks to come? He is the family historian of that amazing wrestling dynasty and he'll be with me as well. Um, also want to say before I continue, I was listening back to my introduction for this week's episode. I want to make a slight correction to myself that I realized uh, when I was talking about Gene LaBelle, um, his mother was Eileen Eaton. Cal Eaton, however, uh, the the uh, L.A. promoter was his stepfather, not his father, but his stepfather. Just want to clarify that little, little detail, uh, actually an important detail, but I wanted to clarify it. So uh, keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle, as I said, and join our conversation on Facebook. You can join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. If you uh, look that up on Facebook, you'll find it, and we are growing every week. So please do think about joining. Um, if you want to pick up a copy of my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, you will find copies of the book on Amazon.com in print form, digital form, and audio form read by myself and i've gotten positive feedback on all three versions so it's really your choice if you want to pick up the magazines that i work for i know i mentioned pwi-online.com for pro wrestling illustrated there's also inside the ropes magazine which you can get at inside the ropes magazine.com and if you're looking for me on social media you can find me on twitter and instagram at brian r solomon and on Facebook, my uh, my author page on Facebook is to be found if you if you look up Brian Solomon Writer. And on any one of those uh, social media platforms, you will also find the link to my own personal corner of the Internet, my own uh, little uh, uh, author web page where I actually recently posted something <clears throat> about my contribution to the program for the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. In fact, I posted in its entirety the article I wrote about 2022 Hall of Fame inductee Jim Londis. So if you want to read about what I had to say about the Golden Greek, you can find the link to my author website on any of my social media platforms. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been... Ryan R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that you've got to learn how to fall before you learn to fly. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>